Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church this morning. Let us begin by entering into prayer together. Heavenly Father, we thank you, especially on this Thanksgiving weekend, where we bring to mind the, all the blessings that you provided for us, Father, the ones that are for here on earth, but especially the spiritual blessings, every one of them in the heavenly places. We thank you most of all for Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's by his death and resurrection that by simply believing in Jesus Christ, whoever believes in him will never perish but has eternal life. Father, today we would pray that all that will be going on here as the family assembles together will be glorifying and honoring you and your son, Jesus Christ. We pray also, Father, for those that didn't have a very good Thanksgiving, either because they're being persecuted in a foreign country or they're going through some very difficult time. We ask, Father, especially that you would comfort them and that we have opportunity, Father, that we would also help provide in any way we can, especially for those that are closest to us. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit, we pray. Amen. Please stand and worship with us. <laughs> you know, I had a great visual of leaning on the everlasting arms, looking at that little baby in his mama's arms, thinking he doesn't have a care in the world. Except now, when uh, Hannah wants to take him into uh, Sunday school, that's a different story. <laughs> Any event. Good luck, Hannah. All right, again, thank you for being here today. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church on this fantastic Sunday morning that the Lord has given us. New month means that we are going to be featuring a new missionary organization this month, and it's Mission Aviation Fellowship. Mission Aviation Fellowship. What they do is they share the love of Jesus Christ and the gospel through aviation and technology so they can reach the most isolated people on the planet so that they may be physically and spiritually transformed by having their needs met, by loving Christians, and then by hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have flights, and they support a lot of different activities on the ground. You can imagine when they're there for a short period of time, there's a lot to do. Uh, They are supporting the churches that are already there and the local evangelists. They're also creating access to medical care, providing disaster relief, and making community development projects possible. And again, these are in some of the most remote places on the whole planet. Um, I put this up today because this is the title of an article that I recently received from Mission Aviation Fellowship, and it describes people, and I want to make sure I get this right, describes people that um, were in Mokendoma. That's a great thing about missionary organizations and supporting them is you learn geography like you never would believe. I don't know, I have never heard of this place before, but it's uh, Mokendoma. Now, the thing about this is, is that the people that were writing this letter were, were noticing that the missionaries brought these uh, supplies to them, and at first, the local people thought that they were gods, and they prepared animal sacrifices for the missionaries. Yeah. And of course, just like Paul had that same experience, and he had to say, you know what, we're just as human as you are. We're asking you to turn from the worthless things, the idolatry, to God who made the heavens and the earth. And so they preached that gospel, and they preached about how Paul and Barnabas faced the people of Lystra, who were in fear under the goddess Agdesis. They thought that Paul and Barnabas were Zeus and Hermes, sent to rescue them. Of course, we, don't, we know that's not the case. But even though that seems strange to most modern readers, these are not unheard of situations in the places that Mission Aviation Fellowship serves, places where the message of the gospel is just breaking through. Many people living in Papua, Indonesia, people living in bondage to fear and war and anxiety and superstition, and they have no hope. And the bondage they are living is real, both physical and spiritual oppression. One Indonesian pastor told the missionaries, we would starve with our fields full of crops. If we walked to a field and a bird flew across our path in a certain direction, we wouldn't go because we believed it was a sign that something bad was going to happen. And we would starve to death with food right in sight. Mm. People, the missionaries find mothers giving birth to twins, and that's considered a bad omen. They would literally stop one of the children to death to avoid that curse. They didn't hear the gospel, and therefore they lived, they lived according to their superstitions. But then the missionaries came, and they heard about it, and this made all the difference in the world. This was a very isolated place. It's an island Mountains, far higher than any mountains in the lower 48 states of the United States of America. They had swamps. Well, we have swamps in the United States, too. But little or no infrastructure exists. 
And so the plains were the only bridge between the communities and the interior of the island and the outside world. And they received medical care, the gospel message, food, and supplies. And as these small airplanes are the means by which the missionaries and local evangelists reaches these isolated people, the gospel that brings a message of freedom. Now, when the, when the people of Makdoma heard the message, they really heartily accepted that freedom that Jesus brings. And it shows. It shows in very tangible ways by the way husbands now respect and honor their wives. And the fact that the children are carefree and they're playing. And it shows that when an injured villager uses a Band-Aid rather than cutting herself to get rid of the bad blood. So it makes a difference. Now, if you were to climb up a ridge above the village of McDonald, where you would find yourself looking across a steep valley to another village on the opposite side. The people of this village, only a three-minute flight away, have not yet accepted the gospel, believed in Christ. And life there is very different than Mokdoma. So I hope you can see today that there are places on this earth that are very similar to what Paul encountered in his first and second and third missionary journeys and all throughout the, the Roman Empire. And our support makes it possible for that to change. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So I thought that was a great article, and it really, I found, learned a lot and got a real sense of the work and the importance of it. So again, it's Mission Aviation Fellowship. That's their website, www.maf.org. Um, as many of you know, during the month, we are, uh, we are opening up to say if anybody would like to give to this organization, you can do so by giving um, in any of the ways that we provide, the box in the back, our website, and also by mail. Um, Missionary Aviation Fellowship, again, very important needed ministry through these isolated places. Now, we are also, of course, supporting Grace Bible Church Pakistan. And here we have, every year, as many of you know, they prepare Christmas care packages for the young people, both locally in Arafwala and in the surrounding villages. And uh, we've been announcing this for quite a while. People have really responded. I was so, my heart was so full when I heard how much we have, we have um, in this little church, how much we have raised for this incredible ministry at Christmas time. But today's the deadline. I almost missed it, I'll have to tell you. I was, I was putting together, and I said, wait a minute, I haven't given yet. So anyway, you know me. But in any event, this is the last day. If you intended to give and you haven't yet, um, please do so today. We'll be mailing things out. We, that's the royal we. Marilyn will be mailing out the gifts tomorrow. So, and thank you for all who have given. And all we pray in all the different ways that we support different missionary organizations. One other thing this morning, two weeks from today, we're going to have a luncheon again. The Christmas luncheon. Um, you can't tell uh, Jack today what you're bringing because Jack's not here. He's in, he's in Mississippi, so it'd be a long, long way away. But next week, please tell him what you're planning to bring. Again, it's on December 15th, Sunday, December 15th. Finally, we have Bibles in the back in case anybody would like to have one. Um, raise your hand and we'll make sure you get one because we're about to start the, 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 mini, the mission, ministry, missionary, and the message. A lot of M's. Title of this morning's message comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It actually comes from chapter 12, verse 31, but we're moving into chapter 13, and the title is A More Excellent Way. A More Excellent Way. We're going to see about that this morning. Please turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31. Now to set the stage, as, you, as many of you know who have been following this, this, mess, this series on 1 Corinthians, in chapter 12, Paul introduces the subject of spiritual gifts. These unique manifestations of the Spirit that are given to every member of the body of Christ. And he actually used the imagery, the metaphor of the human body to teach them some things that there are many different members of the human body and there are many different gifts in the congregation. And yet all those members of the body, though different, are all in one body and they're all working together. He was using that picture to, 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 to convict the people of Corinth, the saints, who weren't doing that at all. They were isolating their gift as more important than the others. others they didn't think some gifts were needed at all and so forth. And so he's, he's confronting them with that. And while it may not seem to be obvious, when he moves in chapter 13 to this subject of love, as we shall see, he's continuing to, to help them to see how what they're doing is the very opposite of what it means to be Christian. That they were dividing when we have, we have the unity of the Spirit. 
when they were, they were rivals and jealousy and all of those things when we've been given the bond of love. And so in chapter 13, we're going to see how he does that. Let's begin today in verse 31 of chapter 12. But earnestly desire the greater gifts. We saw last week that that meant that you would desire for the gifts to be fully in operation. Right? And that's something that we all want to see. And of course, that's a matter of the spirit. And it's also a matter of every individual understanding what Paul's teaching here. Understanding that our gift is for the common good and we're going to do it with love. And then he goes on, I will show you a more excellent way. If I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but I do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, if I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to the poor, And if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Nothing. In this letter so far, Paul has addressed several different kinds of divisive, destructive behavior. We've seen that from the very first chapter, when they were breaking up and dividing along the lines of the different teachers and pastors and apostles, and continuing on, when they were taking one another to court when they were using the Lord's Supper as an opportunity for some to boast about how much they have and to ignore those who had nothing. Again and again, there were these divisive divisions, destructive behavior. And in chapter 12, it was no different. He's now dealing with the improper use, the abuse of spiritual gifts. Imagine. Spiritual gifts that God designed to build up the church for the common good, the saints in Corinth abused by setting up their own spiritual pecking order. And they were doing that based on how they prized the gifts, which was very fleshly. The most spectacular gift, that was the biggest deal for them. But that's not the biggest deal to God. You see, the gifts are for the common good, not for somebody to stand out. And so really, they had things backwards. They had things backwards. Well, at the top of their list was the gift of tongues. Now, we've seen in chapter 12 that... Every time he provides a different list of gifts in chapter 12, he intentionally places tongues at the bottom of the list in terms of priority. Now, why is that? Well, because the priority that God has for the spiritual gifts isn't to boast, wow, look at this great gift I have, it's better than yours, right? Not that at all, but rather to build up the whole body. The greatest among you must be the servant of all. That was the principle behind each one of them and each one of us receiving a unique manifestation of the Spirit. Very simply, it's all for the common good. If you have the gift of teaching, it's for the common good, not so you can stand out. If you have the gift of administration, it is to administer to help all of us. If you have the communication gift, like I do, of pastor teacher, it's not for me to show off my knowledge, it's to build up everybody with a message that they need to hear in a simple way so that everybody can understand it. Now, the apostles... They did build up the entire body. As a matter of fact, they founded churches and they preached the gospel to everybody and then built the foundational truths that all who came after were to build on. They certainly built up the whole body. But as a matter of fact, tongues contributed the least to the common good. The least. It was, it was something that built up and edified the individual. And under certain limited circumstances, it could provide some information to the congregation But as Paul would say, I would rather speak five words in a a language that can be understood than 10,000 that nobody understands. You you know, feel me on that? If I got up today and I started boasting about how well I knew Latin and I taught the whole message in Latin, who would leave here edified? Nobody. Well, if if you know, there's always a wise guy. Yeah, I know Latin. See, that's the point. The point is always the common good. And Paul's going to bring this to a head. In chapter 13, he is going to, he's all along, he's been saying, this is the wrong way, this is the right way. But now he's going to just come on and give you the climax of how you're supposed to live as Christians. And it's really simple. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you. Simple. Simple. Simplicity of it. The gospel is simple. You've been forgiven of all your sins. Now go love one another. You see, that's not going to get me the Nobel Prize for preaching. There isn't one, by the way. But it's a message that has to be heard again and again and again. Why? Because we go other places. We get distracted. And we always have to come back to the simplicity 
of Jesus Christ. That's why we come together. To get grounded again. To get built up and rooted in Jesus Christ and the truth of the Word of God. Tongues contributed least to that sort of thing. Time and time again in this letter, Paul's been urging them to very simply stop being selfish. That's really, if you want to boil it all down, it's not all about you, right? If you think it's all about you, you are a clanging cymbal, loud, obnoxious noise that doesn't really produce a melody. That's what he's saying. Stop being selfish. Instead, think about the needs of others. We saw that in the Thanksgiving message last Sunday, that a lot of us are going through things. It's really hard, because when you're suffering, it's really hard, physically, naturally, humanly speaking, to be grateful. But we saw how the Lord turns that around, and at the end of it, we saw that really the thing to do is that when you're hurting, find somebody who's hurting more and minister to them. Yeah, and that's a Christian thing to do. That's a loving thing to do. We are called to preserve unity. It's very important. If you, you probably, think about it. If we're here to gather together as one body, to worship the Lord together, to be built up together, and to provide a witness in terms of our love for one another, of how, how, what Jesus Christ really means, who he really is, that can be destroyed in a heartbeat by one split in this congregation over whatever, you know. Uh, it could be over two people that are having a fight and people are taking sides. It could be over a lot of things, but the problem is, is that will stop us in our tracks as the one body. We are not called to make the unity. The Spirit does that. We're called to preserve it. And the thing about it is, is that there are things that we can choose to do that will not preserve it. And they found all kinds of ways not to do that, to find things that they could use. Maybe they weren't intentionally doing it for the breakup of the church, but some of them were. Well, in chapter 13, Paul brings all of this to a climax. And by the way, chapter 13, yes, it's the love chapter in the Bible, but it's not a break from the correction he's been given. A lot of people think, well, Paul feels like he's been really hard on him for a few chapters, so he's going to call time out, and he's just going to preach on love. And then he's going to go back to what he's teaching. But that's not what he's doing. He's continuing. As a matter of fact, he is bringing forth the ultimate solution to the problems, especially in the spiritual gifts. It's part and parcel of what he's teaching in chapter 12 and 14. Love is the greatest. All right, so chapter 13 is not simply a hymn to love. You know, we, what's the, where we both seen this, this passage proclaimed? Love is patient weddings, right, exactly. Love is patient, love is kind. And that's fine. But we have to understand the context if we really want to get it, you see. It's when we are the opposite of that. When we're unkind, when we're unloving, when we're jealous, you see, that we most need to hear that message. And that's, that's, what we, that's what we see. The Corinthians are a great teaching tool for us because we understand how they did it all wrong. But then we shouldn't hold our noses up to them because we do it all wrong at times. And it's especially at those times that we need messages like what love really is. And to, yes, even to be, to be chastised about the fact that what you've been doing is the opposite of what love really is. We all need to be caught and, and to look at that ourselves. So here Paul is teaching that love is the ultimate antidote to selfishness, to bitterness, to boasting, to not thinking at all about other people, all behaviors that the Corinthians, as we've seen, have been indulging. They've been indulging the flesh, and love is the ultimate antidote to that. Please turn to Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Colossians 3.12. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, that's members of the body, that's believers, that's you this morning, if you believed in Christ. Put on a heart, put on a heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. It's something that we have to put on. In other words, our natural approach, our flesh, you know, is never going to be like this. We still have it. It will never be like this. So what do we have to do? We have to put something on. It's kind of like, not to be gross or anything, but, you know, think about the human body 
uh, without any clothes on. And that's a, then you think, well, that's the flesh. But then now I have to then change that in order that I would be loving. So I'm going to put on you know, clothing, but in this case, put on. It just means to be open and allow the, the, the new man to come through. Put on what? A heart. It's all in the heart. After all, you know, we already read this. Paul can say, you know, you can do all kinds of great things that everyone looks at and thinks is marvelous. But if it's done without love, if in your heart there's no love, it's worthless to God. That's what, that's what he's teaching. It's a matter of the heart. Put on a heart of compassion. And we, there are ways to do this, of course. By the way, one of the ways in which we develop a heart of compassion is by going through suffering ourselves. Have you ever noticed that? I noticed that. You know, there'd be times in the past where I would see somebody... And they were like, hey, how come you're so glum today? Or how come you missed service last Sunday? You know, and all of that, right? Arrogance, stupidity. Because so often people are going through things, painful things, difficult things. So as I, as I go along in life and I go through some of those things myself, I'm like, oh, I can't believe I was so blind. That's what was really going on with that person. And, and while we can never know everything, what we can do is have our hearts change, to be tender to everybody, to be kind to everybody. We can do that, as, because we, we sang this morning, what? I can do a couple of things, all things, right? How? Through Christ who strengthens me. We're never going to do it ourselves. That's, we've seen that. Our flesh will never do this. But Christ in us does. And we're to learn how that works in our lives, how to become a kinder person. By the power of God, these are fruits of the Spirit, humble and gentle and patient. And then bearing with one another, carrying each other's burdens. I've said so many times, you can't carry somebody's burden if you don't know what their burden is. So we have to be aware, tender, observant at times. Ask somebody, hey, you know, it's like somebody was telling me the other day that when, uh, when they're in the Midwest and somebody says, how you doing? They stop and they look at you. Because they really want to know, how are you doing? Well, I don't know about you, but coming from the Northeast, and no, I just went down here in Florida. It's kind of like a pass-through. Hey, how you doing? See you later. You know? But it matters. It matters to at least be open. At least have a tender heart towards one another. We're not always going to do it right. We're going to miss things. We're going to feel like we're not able to help, and we wish we could. That's a good thing. Okay? Not being able to help, but wanting to. Because it's a matter of the heart. You know, we're told not to, not to close our hearts to those who are in need. Bearing with one another, forgiving each other. That's a matter of the heart. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, and we will, we'll have complaints. We'll have things that bother us about other people. We'll have things that we think people were thoughtless to us about. We'll be able to complain if we want to. He says, forgive instead. Just as the Lord forgave you, aha. What, is that, what does that do? See, it takes it out of the, the subjective realm. Well, you know, I'm writing this one, and, you're, and I'm a little better, and you're a little worse, and wow, look at him, and all of that. It takes it way off of that, and again, just puts us all at the foot of the cross. And saying, the greatest manifestation of love is right there. God forgave you all your sins, every last one of them at the cross. And when you think about that, and as I mentioned many times, we know about our sins better than anybody else's sins. Isn't that true? We know sins that nobody ever even found out that we did, but we know they're there. And therefore, what God has forgiven us of, it goes way beyond what we're ever going to need to forgive an individual about. And since that is the case, that ought to humble us and say, I know how absolutely vital was the information that I was saved and that I was forgiven of all my sins. When I learned that, it totally changed me. And I'm sure you too. We're in a world that is not forgiving. Just, just look at the newspapers, look at the television, look at the cable news, look at, no matter what, look at families. My gosh, you hear of families that are just split up and, because they don't forgive one another. They're still, if I, <laughs> I want to get personal, but they still remember things that happened 25 years ago. They're still holding on to them. That's the flesh. But not God. As far as the east is from the west, that's so far he has placed our sins away from us. You should forgive too. Then verse 14, notice the last two, first two words, beyond all. In other words, you know, you have all these different aspects, but they're all aspects of one thing. And if you have that one thing, you'll have all the others. What is it? Put on love. 
which is the perfect bond of unity. Why? Because love, 24-7, is interested in the needs of the one loved. Not because of anything spectacular or wonderful about the one loved, but just because you, you love them. They could be undeserving. They could be ugly to other people. People will come after you. I know a woman who was a mother to a young son who was wayward and did a lot of difficult things, died young. Everybody around her kept telling her, you should cut him off. You should have nothing to do with him. But you see, love felt differently. Love said, I brought this child up. I, I, I know about him. I love him. And my love is for him is not going to be what everybody else sees. It's going to be my unique contribution to this, this person's life that no one else can give. That's love. It's powerful. It never fails. It's the perfect bond of unity. When we love each other, Again, the, the, the particulars, they're in place. Maybe we'll fumble something. Maybe we'll forget to call somebody or whatever, those particular human things. But if we're all loving one another, then these things will come out and flower, and we will get closer. We'll be bonded. We'll be stronger when something comes in, tries to break us up. Love is the strongest bond. It's stronger than death. That's what Solomon wrote in the Song of Solomon. Love. Put it on. Adorn your life with the love that the Spirit has already poured into your heart, Romans 5. But here, the principle is that love preserves the unity of the body. If you want to see us united, the best way you can do that is to let the love of God pour through you to those around you, especially those that you just, that bother you the most. That's the way, if you want to see love at work, see it at work with those that you cannot stand that you don't want anything to do with, naturally speaking. That you have nothing in common as far as the world sees it. That as a matter of fact, you've got your pet peeves. By the way, you know who has the pet peeves? The flesh has it. Jesus Christ has no pet peeves about you. But our flesh certainly does. So there are all those situations. If it's not for love, eventually those situations will cause us to break apart like so many families do. I saw something last night. Unbelievable. There was a Christmas family, a family gathering for Thanksgiving, and something happened. There was some fight. And the in-laws were put out of the house and given a tent. Can you imagine? I mean, that, to me, that is a visual. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Don't be like that. All right? Love preserves the unity of the body. Therefore, love is the more excellent way. Now, chapter 13, which we're beginning today, is very tightly constructed. Always we see this. Well, it's almost like God wrote it. Oh, wait, he did. It is, slightly, it is perfectly put together, and I want to show you that next. Verses 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 13 are contrasts. And they're always contrasting the same thing. A gift without love and a gift with love. Right? And in the natural realm, we can understand that too. You know how... You can almost feel it. Somebody comes in, they have a gift, and you almost can touch it and say, oh, wait a minute, why? Because there's no love behind it. It's perfunctory. Well, I have to. I don't want to, but here, you know. Gifts without love, as Paul's going to say, are nothing. They're meaningless. Gifts with love are everything. And as that's true in the natural world, it's also true with the spiritual gifts. You can have the greatest spiritual gift in the world. You can have people tell you that, you know what, the way you preach the gospel is greater than anybody else. Now, when I hear that, I run away from that. You want to know why? The power is in the simplicity of the words, not the messenger, by the way. You preaching the gospel, if you're just telling them that we're all sinners and Jesus died for all of our sins and rose from the dead, and if you simply believe he is your Savior, you're born again and saved forever. Now, that, that's not complicated. It's simple. So it's not about the, the amazing, it's not about, wow, like today, look at this miracle worker, you know. You know you, people that are miracle workers, supposedly, um, they get a lot of attention, don't they? People want to go to the people, hundreds and thousands of people want to show up and so forth. But, but see, in God's eyes, he's saying, you know what, if there's no love there, if that person's manipulating the people, if that person's in for money, there's no love there, it's useless. It's useless. A spiritual gift no matter how spectacular it is, is of no value, none, if there's no love there. No love there. See, a gift without love is empty. 
It's just think, think about a brass vase with nothing in it. Okay? That, it can make one sound, but it's empty. However, another one is glorious, the one with love. One is a noisy gong, and the other is playing a part in the symphony, the body of Christ. A spiritual gift, no matter how spectacular it is, is of no value, none, if there's no love there. In other words, the simplest gift, if given in love, is the most precious, mighty, and marvelous thing of all. It's not about, you know, how much money. It's not about how spectacular. No. It's about love behind the simple gifts. Well, then we move on to verses 4 and 7. Now, this is the one that's very popular because it is used very often in weddings and so forth. But I want, when we get there, and you can read it on your own this week, it talks about love. Yes, it does. But it talks about what love is. Right? Love is patient. Love is kind. Right? But it also talks about what it isn't. Love is not jealous. See, it brings both of those into the picture as contrasts, right? You have to say to yourself, with this individual, am I more kind and patient? Or am I more jealous and bitter? See, that's why they're both there. They're both there. As a matter of fact, there are more uh, statements about what love is not than what, what, it, what it is. Paul here, in a masterful way, is once again giving a rebuke to the congregation because, and he's already shown this to them, the nine negative things that he's going to say love isn't are all things they were involved with. Don't miss that. You know, don't think, oh, this is a lovely, we'll sing it, you know. Love is patient, love is kind, you know. Yes, it is, but don't miss the fact that, that he's also bringing up, here are the things you don't want to do anymore. Here are the things that are the opposite of love. What it is and what it isn't. All right. And as a matter of fact, there are more negative statements than positive. Nine negative statements about what love is not. Seven positive statements about what love is. That's important. And again, why? Paul pays more attention to the negative statements, has more of them. Again, because this describes how the saints were. That's what they were doing. He's saying the more excellent way is the opposite of the way you've been traveling. Don't miss that. And then finally, in verses 8 to 13, Paul is wrapping up this chapter, and he's going to, before he goes in in chapter 14, to start talking about two of them, and their contrasts, namely prophecy versus tongues, he's going to end this 13th chapter by putting spiritual gifts, all of them, in their proper place. In other words, they're not the be-all and end-all. They have a place. Now he's going to do this. He's going to put spiritual gifts in their proper place with three contrasts. He's going to draw three contrasts between the spiritual gifts and something else. What do I mean by that? Well, the first one is between the partial. He's saying any gift you have, spiritual gift you have, no matter how fantastic it is, it's only partial. It's only part of it. It's only part of the truth. When somebody has had the gift of prophecy, and they were revealing certain things about God and his ways, by the way, things that would ultimately show up in the written canon of Scripture, but but the Bible wasn't written yet when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. So they had their message. We sometimes call it their portion. We say that word sometimes too. But that's the idea. It's partial. All the gifts were like that. Nobody has an infinite amount of money. They have the spiritual gift of giving. Okay, so he's saying, listen, the gifts are partial. They're not a complete package. There is something, however, that is the complete package. And he calls it that which is perfect. That's a contrast between the partial, there's some there, there's some not there, and the complete or the perfect. Everything's there. That's the first one. The second one is between that which passes away. It's going to like, go off the stage at some point. Spiritual gifts will be passing away. They're not permanent. But there, is, there are things that are permanent, that abide, that remain, remain. One of them remains for all of eternity. Our subject today, love. So we have partial and complete. We have that which passes away and that which abides. And then we have a third one. And we can't, a lot of, it's interesting, a lot of commentators don't really focus on the third one. But it's a really important one. What is it? It's the contrast between child and man, adult. And the gifts are the category of childhood. 
You see how this is going to deflate the egos of the people in Corinth who thought they were the be-all and end-all and they were the best, they were the most spiritually fantastic because of a certain gift they had? Paul is saying, listen, compared to what maturity as a Christian looks like, that's all child's play. That's all child's play. All of it. Humbling, isn't it? Humbling. What he's saying is, you know, we've seen already that the gift of prophecy is superior to speaking in tongues. Well, in the same way, that which is perfect, which we'll study in chapter, th- chapter at the end of chapter 13, is superior to any revelatory gift, whether you have, whether you have prophecy or, or apostleship or whatever those things are. That which is perfect is superior. Faith and hope and love are of a higher order than any of the gifts are. And so that if you're operating in faith and hope and especially love, your spiritual gift will be in its right place and operate fine. But then there's a lot of other things that come with love besides the gift. A lot of people, they, they just focus on, what's my gift? What's my gift? What's my gift? You know? And, I, and again, what, how do you know the answer to that? Stop trying to figure out what your gift is. Just love one another. It'll come out. It's a matter of, in other words, it's not a manifestation of John Farley. I have a manifestation of myself. It's called pastor, right? It's a manifestation of the spirit, where the spirit is, all right? And we are to live, walk by means of the spirit, and our gift will come out. Don't worry about it. All right, so in the, in the remaining time today, by the way, we're celebrating the Lord's Supper at the end of the service today because it's the first Sunday of the month. In any event, let's now walk through verses 1 through 3 in a little more detail. Thirteen, Chapter 13, verse 1. The more excellent way. Chapter 13, verse 1. If I speak with tongues of men and of angels. Angels. But I don't have love. I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Think of it. You can have a gift of speaking languages. In a supernatural way. And if it were possible, this is by a hypothetical, exaggerated, hyperbole. Even if you could speak like angels speak. If you don't have love, it's nothing but a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm going to show a picture of this in a minute. If I have the gift of prophecy. Notice, by the way, Paul is saying, I. Very gracious thing. In other words, you know, he wants to get the point across in the most gentle way possible. Here. He could just hammer him out. Yeah, you think you have this gift? Bam, you're nothing. Is that what he does, though? Who's he talking about here? Himself, right. That way they get to, like, relax, sit down in the congregation, and let's look at this whole thing played out with Paul. All right, and then they'll get the point, but it won't be coming across as condemning. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but don't have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, if I know all mysteries and all knowledge, a lot of people are impressed. Wow, that, that guy knows the whole Bible. Okay, how much love is behind what he's doing? That's the key. It's not knowing all things. I fell into that trap. I thought that the best way to become the most perfect pastor was to know more than anybody else. Then I finally realized that's not true at all. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that those who would be the first must be the servant of all. And that if I'm not preaching in a way that everybody can get it. In other words, rather than about me, look at my great gift, look at my great knowledge. If I would just shut that down and think about you and you, the people that I'm preaching and saying, how do they need to hear this? Not, not me, but you, right? If I have the gift of prophecy and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, if that were possible, so as to remove mountains... But do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but I don't have love, it profits me nothing. He is saying, I am about to show you a way of living that is far beyond all comparison, beyond anything he has taught them so far, beyond the exercise of spiritual gifts. Along the way, in chapters 1 through 11, he has shown part of it, pieces of it, And now he reveals the full extent of it. Love is a way of living that is incomparable. It's incomparable, especially the love that we've been given, the love of God poured into our hearts. Now here in verses 1 to 3, he speaks of gifts. He speaks of tongues and prophecy and so forth. 
And they're supercharged, are they not? Hyperbole, exaggeration. He's saying, look, if not only do I give all my possessions, but I then take my body itself and have them burn it. See how exaggerated that is? Nobody ever asked, no, Paul never asked them to have their body burned. But it's an exaggeration. Even though I do all of that, but if I don't have love, it's meaningless. He purposely, in other words, exaggerates them. Why? Because they think there's something with the gift that's operating. He says, you know, imagine if you could do the speaking in tongues of angels. They'd be like, oh, yeah. Where do I sign up? He says, listen to me. You can have all of that, but if you don't have love, that's all you are. Clanging symbol. Even on their best day, these gifts are nothing without love. That's why you want to start with the love, not with the gift. Now, he does one other thing here, and I mentioned it already. He's done this before, and he uses himself as the example. Verses, we've seen this. Verses 1 through 3 are in the first person, I. And again, rather than pointing the finger right at him, this is what you, what pastors do a lot, right? You got a problem. This is what you need to do, you know? Uh, hey, pastor, don't you have that same problem? Uh, there's no speaking in church, you know? No, he starts with himself. He says, I'm not going to point the finger at you. I'm going to direct you to look at me as I'm working out these things myself concerning gifts versus the supremacy of love. If I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Here, for the first time, he begins with tongues. Because, again, this was the gift they most glorified. And you see, if he, if he puts that first, and he shows them that the most glorious manifestation of tongues is nothing without love, it's just like a, a clanging gong, a noisy gong, then, then from there he can move on and he's gonna, everyone else is going to understand, okay, I get it. We've been way off in our priorities. He's saying, listen, you can utter the most lofty speech, you can sing the most amazing can- cantano, if that's what it's called, I don't know. You can sing and it sounds lovely, you know, it's funny, uh, you hear these, uh, these uh, Christmas songs, right? Christmas songs. And you have like the famous artists and they have an orchestra behind them and they sound unbelievable. But they're preaching false teaching. <laughs> You're like, people don't look at that. You know, like, um, have yourself a merry little Christmas. And it goes from, uh, what is it? I'm going to get to the point. If the fates allow, remember that? If the fates allow. Do you realize that that's blasphemous? You ever stop and think about it? We don't, but we do. Who is supposed to be allowing? Who is when we say somebody willing? The Lord. Anyway, I'm getting off track. But don't go by the spectacular. It sounds wonderful, right? He says, listen, you can utter the most lofty speech, but if, it, if you're not motivated by love, it's a bunch of obnoxious sound. Bwomp, 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 Charlie Brown. Teacher was probably teaching something lofty. Well, what did he hear? Wah, 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 wah. Linus was in the same classroom. He heard it again and again and again and again. And then behind him, the only person with common sense. Psst. So are you getting any of this? I've had situations where, where you know, the people go to hear. They, they come out saying, this is the most amazing guy. You've got to hear him. And then I say, what did he teach on? Oh, I don't remember. <laughs> no. I don't remember. But he's great. Their behavior in Corinth showed they weren't doing things in love at all. They're, as they're, as J. Vernon McGee, their actions spoke so loudly you couldn't hear a word of what they were saying. By the way, in verse 1, when he's talking about tongues of angels, I want to tell you something. This is, by the way, this is not a secret language that, all, that the angels speak. I mean, how arrogant do you have to be? Because, again, if you're speaking an a, a language only the angels can speak, the angels are the only one who's going to understand you. How does that build up your brother and sister in Christ? But that's not what it's talking about here. As a matter of fact, I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 2, verse 8. Speaking of angels, Luke chapter 2, verse 8. Yeah, it's Christmas time. And so we're going to Luke chapter 2 to see part of the Christmas story. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, 
And they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Womp, 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 womp. Would that have been too meaningful for the shepherds? No. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. In other words, the angel, when he showed up, spoke to them in their language. Angels don't, don't come to humans and speak some lofty language. They speak their language. Just like Paul said, I'd rather speak five words you can understand than 10,000 in the angelic tongue, if there is one. All right, back to 1 Corinthians 13, 2. Tongues, tongues, tongues. Now we're going to get to prophecy and the gift of knowledge and faith. He's going to say the same thing. If I have the gift of prophecy and if I know all mysteries, here's the exaggeration. And all not. Some pastors think they know it all, but none of us do. As far as it's, it's all in the Bible, it's not all in my head. You know, people play stump the pastor. I'm just going to tell you right now. There's a lot of questions you can ask me that I don't know the answer to. Okay? Just relax. But I know the answers in the Bible, and I always say this. Give me some time, and I'll get you the answer. Why? Because it's not about, you know, my genius. It's about going back to the Word in any event. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. While tongues was a very limited gift revealing truth, by far the more important revelatory gift revealing truth was the gift of prophecy. Because why? They were speaking for God to the whole congregation. And Paul is saying, even if I knew every one of God's mysteries and I obtained all the knowledge there is, if I didn't have love, all of that amounted to nothing. What an indictment that is. That must have been a shock to the Corinthians who valued and prized rhetoric and, 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 and great speech and so forth. And knowledge. Gnosis, right? That's the Greek word. All the more because they were about to be told that they lacked all love. And therefore, whatever gift they have is also amounting to nothing. God tells us, I don't care how much you know. If you don't love one another, it's worthless. I want to let that sink in. I don't, God said, I don't care how much you know. If you don't love one another, it's worthless. It's a bunch of highfalutin nonsense. If people think that you don't care about them, they're going to tune you out. No matter how you try to impress them with your so-called knowledge. By the way, we're going to see these three revelatory gifts, tongues, prophecy, and knowledge, again later on in chapter 13, so stay tuned for that. If I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. That's a shocker to everybody, isn't it? I mean, we all live by faith. How can it be nothing? And this is amazing faith. It's faith that can remove mountains. Picture it. That's incredible. Again, he's exaggerating. But moving mountains is an impossible task. If we ever had somebody who could do that, we would be in awe of that person. Most people would. Books would be written about him. He would be a, every megachurch would want him to come and do stuff. Every Christian television station wanted him to be on. And yet, if there's no love there, it's nothing, according to God. See, his ways are not our ways. To him, it's much more marvelous for somebody who's in pain themselves to reach out and care and think about somebody who's in pain than for somebody to, re- to remove a mountain. That's humbling. Love, the love in question, the love that Paul is going to describe in verses 4 to 7 is nothing less than the love of God. It is made visible in Christ. It's the greatest love. And love is the greatest thing. And God is much more pleased with selfless love than he is with miracles. Let that sink in. Let's get our priorities straight. God is much more pleased, much more, with selfless love than he is with miracles. Think of it. Where's the ultimate love? Where do we look to? What is the ultimate in God's love for us? It's the cross of Christ. You know that Jesus could have performed a miracle? And he would have wiped out all the soldiers that were bringing him to the cross and nailing him to it. But he didn't. Why? He chose instead unimaginable suffering because of his love for us. Love is much more important than miracles. If you live in this love, you will know and understand God because it's the love that brought the Son of God, think of it, into this dark world and finally onto a cross. 
And the Lord said that anyone who simply gives a cup of water to a disciple who has come in his name will receive a reward, a reward for that. Why? Because it's a gesture of love, honoring the Lord and, and, and loving the one who's bringing the message. Do you know that in the Bible, I can't find a single place where he says a miracle worker will receive a reward. Can't find it. As a matter of fact, we see quite the opposite. We'll be wrapping this up. But look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Matthew 7, verse 21. Never said a miracle worker would receive a reward. Quite the opposite. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Why? Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They practice the opposite of love of the Lord and one another. Okay, finally, verse 13, 13.3. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned, boy, isn't that impressive? But what if the reason he did that was because that's all he wanted? You know, he wanted his final legacy to say, there was one who gave all his possessions to the poor and even gave his body to be burned. You know, if it was in the Catholic Church, they'd make him a saint. But, you see, that's not the issue, is it? Paul says, you can do all that, that's fine, but if it's not in love, it doesn't matter. Now, that's, that's something that ought to make us look and stand and think about it. You know, it's what's, it's what's behind what you're doing that matters. Why are you doing it? Now, if you think about it, you know, Jesus did tell his disciples in the gospel to give up their possessions. You know why? Because he was getting them ready to be taken into the kingdom. That's not said to the church. Okay? It's not. We are, but how, how do I know that? Well, because if you gave out all your possessions, then how would you support your wife? Ephesians 5 says, love your wife sacrificially. You couldn't. So that's not said. Mike, see, the only, I want you to understand that there's a difference between saying, hey, the kingdom's upon us. Because in the kingdom, everything's going to be there. So don't worry about what you have now. We're headed towards the kingdom. Okay, but that's not the situation of the church. But even that, even at that, even Jesus never told anyone to surrender their body to be burned. Never. By the way, there are unbelievers who do this to make a statement. Buddhist monks set themselves on fire during the Vietnam War. But they were Buddhist monks. They didn't believe in Christ. So don't let that kind of thing fool you. No, Paul instead tells us to present our bodies for service. Love. Not to give them over to be burned. Paul never expected any saint to actually surrender their body. It's an exaggeration. But even if someone did that, Paul says, if they didn't do it out of love, it would have no real value. The kind of love we're talking about is that the Lord laid down his life for us. And therefore, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Not have our bodies burned, but day in and day out, present ourselves to the Lord and to one another to serve. All right. Next Sunday, we will see the different facets of this love that we're being introduced to in chapter 13. So let's look forward to that. Let's close and get ready for the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you today for what you have in your word. We know that all scripture is God-breathed. We know ultimately it all is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And men wrote down what they were inspired to write. So we thank you for this incredible provision because... We wouldn't know about the gospel today if it weren't for the fact that it was written down and passed on from generation to generation. We wouldn't know all the truths that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We know all of that because you've had your word in the Bible for the last 2,000 years. And we thank you for that. And Father, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper today, Father, help us to walk into it understanding that the greatest love is the love that your son demonstrated when he was on the cross. We ask this all in Jesus' name, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. I would now like to invite the ushers now to come forward, and if you would, please pass out the communion elements.
Well, today we have begun chapter 13, the first letter to the Corinthians. And we've seen that love is acknowledged as superior to any other thing. The love in question in view is not sentimental. It's not romantic love. Instead, it is sacrificial love that places the needs of others ahead of our own needs. In other words, it's the love that was on display at the cross, the love that was made visible in Christ Jesus, God's love. It's the love that motivated the Father to give us his one and only Son, for God so loved the world, the love so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It's the love that sent God's Son to the cross to die for us. As Paul writes, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in who? The Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And it is a love that has to demonstrate itself. Sacrificial love is motivated. It has to. It's something that it has to do. This to demonstrate, to love, to care, to take care of, to do something to help those in need. That's, the, that's sacrificial love. You can't, in other words, sacrificial love cannot just be in the head. Okay? It has to be something that you're doing with your body, sacrificing for somebody else. Because God demonstrated his love toward us, he demonstrated it, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it's a love that we're called to walk in. In Ephesians 5, chapter 5, verses 1 to 2, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. This is the love that 1 Corinthians 13 describes. This is the love that we bring to mind every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also, after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do that as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's do that. For as often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death, the greatest display, the greatest demonstration of God's love, until he comes until he comes for us in the clouds, in the rapture. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you again for giving this great demonstration, illustration, remembrance in the Lord's Supper. We thank you, Father, that it it calls us to concentrate on the body that Christ gave up for us on the cross and the body that we've become, his body now. We thank you for the cup, remembering that it was his blood, that has redeemed us. And we thank you, Father, also for your word, which is alive and powerful, by which we can share the good news with others. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Just a couple of reminders as we close today. Our next service will be on Thursday. We have a Bible study every Thursday at 7 o'clock, right here. Also, I want to mention that several people have asked to extend their greetings at this Thanksgiving weekend, and in particular, Fazil and Carrie John out there in Pakistan, and Keithy and Starling, and Rory Clark, Pastor Clark. So I'll extend all their best wishes to the congregation. Also, I want to ask you to give us your prayer requests. Okay, You can do that. Either in the lobby, there's a box. You can write them in, or you can go on our website, and, uh, and you can put your prayer request in at that time. All right, before we close, I just one more time want to make sure that we hear the gospel so that we can then go preach it. The fact is that we're all born sinners. We're all born dead in our trespasses and sins, everyone. And without something happening, we could never save ourselves. We could never do it. Therefore, we're, we're in big trouble. But God, because he so loved us, gave us a solution to the sin problem. It's his son, Jesus Christ. And he gave his son, became man, 
and went to the cross and died for us. He died for all of our sins. He was buried, God's son in human flesh. And then on the third day, God the Father raised him from the dead. A true miracle. So that everyone who believes in Jesus Christ, the one who's died for us and was raised from the dead, will never perish but has eternal life. Has salvation you can never lose. Why? Because you didn't work for it. You didn't do it. You just believed in the one who did. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. If you have any questions today about the gospel, God's word, I invite you to speak with me after service. We always do that. Don't be shy. And one more time, let's close in prayer. Final, final prayer. Father, thank you this morning again for gathering us all together around your word and your son. As we leave today, Father, help us to take words with us. Help us to understand in our hearts more and more. Have the Holy Spirit illuminate us about how we ought to put on a heart of love. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, you're dismissed. Have a great day.